through prophecy, God lifts the veil so that we can look forward and see Jesus in a way that otherwise would never be able to see. Welcome to this edition of Living in the Light, a weekly study in the Bible with Anne Graham Lotz. This week's message begins Anne's series from the book of Revelation, a book for those who love Jesus, a book you'll want to be in to study for yourself. Here's Anne with today's message, Holding On to Hope. There is bound to be somebody who is under stress and pressure, somebody here who feels that life is just falling in on you, that you've been caught in a black whirlpool, and you don't know which end is up, and you know, it can be overwhelming, can it? What do you do? Do you feel God has abandoned you? You wonder where he is. And Jesus is supposed to be sitting on the throne, but you just have no sense of it. And there are times when we can be caught in just a vortex of all of these things happening to us at one time, and it can really throw us for a loop, which is why we need to stay focused on Jesus. And sometimes just to stay focused requires as much effort as the hardest thing we've ever done. The New York City Marathon is 26 miles long. People come from all over the world once a year to race in it. The idea is not so much to win the marathon, it's just to finish the marathon. The average runner finishes in four hours. Bob Wyland finished it in 98 hours. It took him over five days because Bob Wyland ran on his hands. And he's a Vietnam War vet. He was with his platoon in Vietnam. He was a medic, a combat medic. And one of his platoon members stepped on a landmine, and he ran to help him, and he stepped on one. And it was a mine that was aimed for a tank. So it blew him apart. They took him away in a zipped-up body bag, thinking he was dead. Thirty minutes later, they realized he wasn't. But they'd had to amputate his legs from above the knee, so he has no legs. He runs, putting a size one shoe on his hands, and runs on his hands. He has run six marathons since. He finished the Hawaiian International Ironman Triathlon in less than five days. And the reason Bob Weiland, he stays focused. And his aim is to inspire other people to stay focused and to accomplish what they think they can't and to overcome obstacles that can seem to be overwhelming. And what Bob Weiland exemplifies in his life, I believe we see in the early church in the first century AD, the early church was under stress, pressure, their world was falling in on them. They were in a vortex of evil and wickedness. The emperor Domitian was on the throne and he declared himself to be God. He demanded to be worshipped. And when the early church refused to worship him, he poured out persecution on the Christians. He burned them at the stake. He crucified them on crosses. He fed them to wild animals. So the early Christians felt they had no future. And you know they must have been feeling, where is God? Has he abandoned us? Is this all a bad joke? Was Jesus just some sort of a myth? And we just misunderstood who he was. And so they're in this kind of confusion, pressure, stress, hopeless. And it was at that moment that God gave to the apostle John a vision of the future, a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of this book, Revelation, is not to tell us what's coming in the future, but just to help us focus on Jesus in the midst of a life that's unraveling and a world that's falling apart. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to begin 
by looking at this vision of the glory of Jesus as John imparts it to us in chapter 1, and he challenges us in chapter 1 to keep our focus on Jesus, just holding on to hope through looking forward. And we can do that through four things that he brings out in this chapter, at least four things that I see, through prophecy and through praise and through patience, and lastly through prostration, just utter surrender to Jesus. So let's look first of all at the fact that we focus on Jesus holding on to hope as we look forward through prophecy. And he says in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I just want to stop right there because I know there's some of you here, bound to be, who are afraid of this book. And you've read some of it and you get caught up in the numbers and the symbols and the imagery and it just seems frightening and you just can't make sense of it. And, you know, so you stay in the Psalms and the Gospel of John and some of the other more comfortable places and... This first phrase tells you what the book is all about. It's not primarily about revealing the future. It's primarily about revealing Jesus. And if you love Jesus, this is a book you want to be in (laughs) because it's a book that reveals Jesus in a way that no other book in the Bible does. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word reveal means to lift the veil. Prophecy lifts the veil and enables us to see something we couldn't except we had the prophecy. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints could see Jesus when God lifted the veil through prophecy. So Isaiah could see him as the lamb by whose stripes would be healed or the, ver- the child that would be born of a virgin, the wonderful counselor, almighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. Micah could see him as the one who would be born in Bethlehem. Abraham could see him as the seed through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. Adam and Eve, going all the way back to the beginning, see him as the one whose heel would be bruised, but he in turn would stop the head of the serpent and defeat Satan for all time. And, and all the way through the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets could see Jesus as prophecy lifted the veil. They didn't know his name, and they didn't know what we know, but they knew something about Jesus through prophecy. So God gives us prophecy so that we can look forward and see Jesus in a way that otherwise we'd never be able to see him. And it's revealed by God and recorded by prophets because it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So he's given it to you to show you what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Interesting thing is that for you and me, revelation is prophecy. It's still future. For John, it's history. (laughs) 28 times he says, I heard with my own ears. And 49 times he says, I saw with my own eyes. So the book of Revelation is John's eyewitness account of the future. This is what he saw with his own eyes and he heard with his own ears. Let me share with you John's testimony because it just brings it into focus. The Apostle John, if he were standing here, he would tell you something like this, okay? I was a disciple of John the Baptist for years and then one day I was standing beside the Jordan River and a man walked by and John the Baptist said, there goes the Lamb of God. He'll take away the sin of the world. So I stopped following John the Baptist and I became a disciple of Jesus for three years I saw him in all different situations. I saw him walk on water. I saw him give sight to a man born blind. I saw him heal the lame and give hearing to the deaf and cleanse the... I saw him raise people from the dead. And I'll never forget Thursday night. We were in that upstairs room. 
And we had had supper together. He taught us and taught us about heaven and taught us that he was the vine, we are the branches, and that we'd be persecuted because of our identification with him. He taught us about the Holy Spirit who would come to live inside of us. And then we went out to the garden. He asked me to pray with him, and I was so sleepy I just went to sleep. When I woke up with my own eyes, I saw the Roman soldiers placing him under arrest. I saw them bind his hand, take him off to trial, put him on trial before three religious trials, Annas, Caiaphas, and then the Sanhedrin. I heard with my own ears as the Sanhedrin convicted him of blasphemy, of claiming to be God in the flesh. And then with my own eyes, I saw as they took him and they put him on trial before the Roman governor Pilate, and then to Herod, and then back to Pilate. I saw as they scourged him and whipped him until the flesh and blood ran from his body. And I heard the Roman governor say, this man is innocent and wash his hands of responsibility and say, this man is innocent, but you can crucify him. And I saw with my own eyes as they put the cross on his back, and he carried it up to the place of execution. They laid him down on the cross, and they drove the nails through his hands and feet and lifted that cross and planted it in the ground like a tree. I saw Jesus of Nazareth crucified like a criminal on the Roman cross. And I stayed at the foot of the cross for six hours. At one point, he noticed me and asked me to take care of his mother, which I did for the rest of her life. And then I heard with my own ears as he cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he refused to take the next breath. I saw Jesus give his life and die. And you understand at that point, my life fell apart. I had thought he was the redeemer. I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was God walking the earth in a man's body and he had gone and died on the cross like some criminal and my whole world came crashing down. You talk about confusion and darkness and being in a vortex of evil. And I went back to that upstairs room with the other disciples and we locked the door and we barred the windows and I curled up in a little ball of grief and anger and confusion and I couldn't make sense of anything. I didn't care if I ever ate again, ever talked again, ever saw. I couldn't make sense of anything. And in my confusion and anger and grief, the hours ran together until it was Sunday morning and I heard somebody banging on the door. I thought the Romans had come to get us. And then I heard a woman's voice. And I opened the door, and it was Mary. And she was saying something about grave robbers. She'd been to the tomb where they'd laid Jesus, and it was empty, and somebody had robbed the grave. And Peter and I looked at each other. We had the same thought. We ran through that open door in the early morning streets of Jerusalem. We came to the garden and the tomb where we knew Jesus had been buried. The stone was rolled away, just like Mary said. And Peter went inside, and he was so angry, he just exploded, and he left. But I went inside that tomb, and I will never forget what I saw with my own eyes. Nothing except the grave clothes were lying there. Now you understand, I was at Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And when he did, he told Martha to unwrap Lazarus. And when Martha unwrapped him, when she finished, the grave clothes were just a pile of stinking rags. But Jesus, his grave clothes were lying there, not as though somebody had unwound them and taken him off naked. They were lying there as though he was still inside, except he wasn't. They were lying there like an empty cocoon, as though the body had evaporated up through them. And then I knew Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. And I went back to the upstairs room, still confused, couldn't make sense of it, didn't understand. And Sunday afternoon, with my own ears, I heard that familiar voice say, Peace, it is I, be not afraid. And I turned, and with my own eyes, I saw Jesus of Nazareth standing in front of me. 
I saw the wound on his brow where the thorns had just been and the wounds in his hands and feet where the nails had just been. And he invited me to touch him. And for 40 days, he taught us. He came and went and taught us all sorts of things. He took the scriptures, he opened them up and showed how he had to have suffered these things and to accomplish our redemption and our atonement. And one day we were all gathered and we were on the Mount of Olives and he was teaching us as was his custom and he reached out his hands to bless us. And when he did, with my own eyes, I saw Jesus of Nazareth in his physical man's body begin to lift up off the ground. I saw him begin to rise up through the air I saw him disappear in the clouds of glory. I saw Jesus ascend back into heaven. But that's not all I've seen. Let me tell you what else I've seen. With the same eyes, with the same ears, I have seen and heard Jesus Christ come back. With these same eyes, I have seen wars on a worldwide scale so devastating that the Blood of those who are killed in battle rises to the height of a horse's bridle. I've seen pestilence like AIDS and the bird flu and Ebola virus wipe out a third of the Earth's population. I've seen stars like scud missiles falling out of the sky. And I've seen mountains fall into the sea. And I've seen a beast rise up out of the sea to rule the world. And I've seen a false prophet who does signs and wonders and miracles in his name. I've seen a dragon who gives them both power. I've seen hell opened up and demons flooding the earth. And I've seen heaven opened. And I've seen angels come down. And I've seen a white horse appear whose rider is named Faithful and True, followed by the armies of heaven coming back to rule and reign on this earth. I have seen, oh, listen to me, I have seen the beginning of everything, at the end of everything, over everything, under everything, around everything, through everything. I have seen Jesus Christ absolutely supreme. All of history, climaxed, summarized in the person of Jesus Christ coming back to reign on this earth. That's John's testimony. Now, how would we know that except we had the prophecy, right? It's thrilling. This book is not just whatever you've thought of it. It's John's personal testimony. He has seen it. He has heard it. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And it actually means blessed is the one who continuously hears, continuously reads. That's why I know you're going to be blessed. (laughs) Because God promises to bless you. When you continually study and read and apply and live by this book. And I think it means the entire Bible, but specifically the book of Revelation. Only book in the Bible that promises a special blessing to those who saturate themselves in it. And I'll tell you two of the blessings I think you're going to receive. The primary blessing is that when you saturate yourself in the book of Revelation, you have hope as you look forward because you see Jesus in a way you otherwise wouldn't. It helped you stay focused in the midst of that swirling vortex of evil and confusion and anguish and suffering and sorrow. And and the second thing, I think, not only are you blessed because you see Jesus, but blessed because you learn how to tell time. You know what time it is. The time is near. And it's a lot nearer than it was when John wrote this. And I believe this book, in a unique way, is for you and me in this generation. So what do you think about prophecy? And you think it's just for prophets and, you know, people who just 
count all the numbers and figure out the imagery and all. It's not. It was written to give hope to the hopeless. It was written to people who are just under pressure and stress and their lives are falling apart and they need something to hang on to. And the book of Revelation helps us because we look forward through prophecy and see Jesus absolutely supreme at the beginning of everything, at the end of everything, everything summed up in him. He's the only one who makes sense out of the senseless, gives hope to the hopeless. So as you read Revelation, open your eyes, open your ears, ask God to give you a fresh vision of Jesus for yourself. And we look forward with hope when we look forward and keep our focus on Jesus through praise. And sometimes when you're in that vortex, you can forget to praise him. Verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and was and is to come. We praise him for his deity. And God the Father is in that first phrase. God the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before his throne. And the Holy Spirit is spoken of as the seven spirits because seven is the number of perfection and the Holy Spirit is perfect. He is God. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And John is just making the point that Jesus Christ is fully God. God the Father, God the sevenfold spirit, God the Son. So Jesus didn't just appear at Bethlehem. He always has been, always will be. In Genesis chapter 1, the first three verses, we find the Godhead. There, it's, you have to look for it, but Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One we think of as God the Father. Verse 2, the Spirit of God hovered over the first face of the deep. That's God the sevenfold Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, and God said, his word went forth. Let there be light, and there was. And all the way through Genesis 1, that phrase, and God said, and God said, and everything he said came about. And we know from Colossians that That's the creator by whom, for whom, through whom everything was made that was made. And his name is Jesus. Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh. And John said, I've seen him and I've heard him. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is fully God. So I can't explain the Trinity. Okay, I won't even try. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are the same in Intellect, power, personality, will, but they're different. (laughs) They're wonderful. And Jesus is God. We praise him for his godness, for his deity. We praise him for his humanity because, and this is a mystery, fully God and he is fully man. Look at the middle of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's his humanity. In his humanity, he's the Savior who redeemed us with his blood. Has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. He is the Lord who rules our lives, enabling us to fulfill God's purpose for us. Our purpose, by the way, is not to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous. Sorry to disappoint some of these People who make a lot of money off of telling people that, you know, God wants us to be prosperous and materially blessed. And I don't see that in the New Testament. I see some of that in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. He blesses us in the New Testament with persecution <laughs> and suffering. And, but he gives us purpose and a reason to live. And we can serve him as priests in his kingdom. 
And then look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. He's the king who's going to return just for me and just for you. So in his humanity, the savior who redeems us with his own blood and the Lord who rules our lives so that we can fulfill God's purpose and the king one day will return just for us. One day I was feeling very small. You ever feel small? (laughs) And I've suffered from low self-esteem. And don't take that wrong, but because my family is a family of such high achievers. And so what that does is make me feel very small. And one day I was feeling smaller than usual. And I was doing my Bible study on this passage, you know, paragraph at a time. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean in my life? And so I was just on this paragraph and I was just thinking, and I seemed to hear God whisper to me. Does he ever do that to you? Just as you're reading the scripture, and it's just sort of a thought that comes, and it begins to develop, and it blossoms, and you know God's speaking to you. And he just seemed to whisper, Anne, who's the most important man in your life? You know, and I was thinking, well, of course, my husband and my daddy, my son, my son's-in-law. And, and he said, well, who's the most important person do you think in the world? And I was thinking, well, outside of that, the most important man in the world probably would be the president of the United States. At least he's the most important man in this country. And because we still lead the world, he would be the most important man maybe in the whole world. And for four years or eight years. And then he goes off and whatever. And, and so the most important man on, in America, on planet Earth, is the president of the United States for four years or eight years. And then this whisper thought came to me. And Jesus is the most important man not just in America, not just in the world, but in all of the universe. And not just for four years or for eight years, but forever and ever and ever. And the most important man in all of the universe forever and ever thinks you are so important that he's the Savior who gave his own blood to take away your sin. And the Lord who rules the details of your life so you can fulfill God's purpose. And the King one day will return just for you. I haven't felt so small since. You find your worth and your value and your esteem, if you want to call it that, at the foot of the cross. When you see who Jesus is, God, man, giving himself for us, that we might know him in a personal, permanent, passionate relationship, coming into our lives to rule them, to give us purpose and meaning, and one day coming back to take us to live with him forever. I love to see the full moon anywhere, but at the beach maybe especially. And if you go to the beach when the moon is full, you know how it comes up over the water? At least on the East Coast it does. <laughs> and it comes up and, and then I'm standing on the beach and there's a moonbeam that comes straight to me. You know, if I walk down the beach, then that moonbeam sort of follows me. And I don't know quite how it does that. But, so I've got my moonbeam, but my, if my husband is about 100 yards down the beach, he's got a moonbeam that goes to him. And if Mar and Trainer are, you know, 100 yards down that Side, then the moonbeam comes to each one. We each have our own moonbeam. And somehow, Jesus is like that. So that if I had been the only person who needed a Savior, he would have come and died just for me. And if I was the only person who needed a ruler in my life to enable me to fulfill God's purpose, he would come and just rule the details of my life, never mind all the planets and things he's got to spin and the nations he's got to rearrange and, you know, just... He's just concerned with me. And one day when he comes back, he's not coming back just for everybody. He's coming for me. You see, it's, and for you, and for you, and for you. Praise him for his humanity.
Praise Him for His deity. Praise Him for His eternity. Now here's Anne with this final word. Make time each day to praise Jesus for who He is by reflecting on who He is through prophecy. Read the Bible. Identify His attributes so you can live your life in praise of who He really is. Then pray, not just asking Him for things or thanking Him for what He has done or may do, but just praising Him for who He is in Himself. Praise helps you get your eyes off yourself as it puts everything in proper perspective. If you're depressed or stressed with responsibility or discouraged by the smallness of your life, you can find hope today through the vision of His glory. So look up, refocus on who Jesus is. And who is He? He is the Lord God Almighty. He is our hope for the future. Hold on to Him. You've been listening to Living in the Light with Anne Graham Lotz. And if you'd like to share today's message, go to annegramlots.org, where you'll find much to assist you in getting into the Word of God, in praying, in sharing Christ with others. Join us again here next week for Living in the Light.